Welcome to our Sunday School class for Graceway Baptist Church. It's always a joy to know that you're here. And uh, for those of you who are listening by audio because you're going to teach, God bless you and thank you for what you do. And um, I was praying this morning that God would use this, but also use you, and I'll say us because I teach a class too, to see people really grow and develop, but not only that, to reproduce. One of the marks of maturity in the Christian life is, are we reproducing ourselves, making disciples, which only comes when we lead other people to faith in Christ? And I would love to see your class reach a bunch of people this year, new believers that you can disciple and bond with and fellowship with and help them to grow. And I'm praying that for my class as well, because uh, that would be a, a wonderful thing. And it would show our maturity in the Lord. You grow up and you reproduce, you have babies. And that's what um, God's will is for us too, according to the Great Commission and 2 Timothy 2.2 and verses like that. So uh, thank you for your part in that. And uh, may the Lord bless you. Now, if you're watching this because you uh, had to miss Sunday school, this is the lesson for August 8th of 2021. And we are still going through the New City Catechism. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time to catch up and make sure that you're on the same page <coughs> with uh, all of your fellow students in your class. And don't forget to uh, pray for your class members. And for those of you who are class members watching this, don't forget to pray for your teacher. They really, really need it. Okay? Now, uh, catechisms are questions and answers. And uh, this one is one that is extremely important. How can we be saved? Really, is there anything else that matters? And certainly we would love to grow beyond that once we are saved. But keep in mind that nothing else really matters unless we're saved. And so you could pray all kinds of things, but if you're not saved, you don't really have a prayer. And you could come to church and worship, but if you're not saved, you never really worship, do you? I think about uh, the Apostle Paul before he was saved. He was Saul of Tarsus, remember? And uh, he was, by his own testimony, a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the very strict sect of Jews that wanted to really keep the law, and they considered themselves to be holy and to be righteous above other people. Remember, Jesus had a lot of trouble out of the Pharisees. Well, Saul later to be the Apostle Paul, was one of them. And he said that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, he was kind of the uh, top shelf of the Pharisees. Well-educated, very, very disciplined, and uh, had the appearance of really being moral. Boy, if anybody's right with God, if anybody is pleasing to Yahweh, it would be Saul of Tarsus. That's what the other Pharisees uh, would say. 
And you remember that as you read in that ninth chapter of Acts about his salvation, he is blinded and they take him to a, a house where they care for him. And it's about that time that God tells Ananias, go and seek out this man named Saul, and told him where he was. And Ananias goes, basically, this is a trend, free paraphrase, I guess. Uh, you got to be kidding, God. We've heard about that guy and you know how he is. And God says, go see him. And, and then it says this, for behold, he prays. Now, that is something that really ought to catch our attention. Are you telling me that this Pharisee of the Pharisees, this man who had been born and bred a Jew, this man who had practiced it this diligently so that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, had never prayed before? What about before his meals? You suppose he had never prayed before his meals? What about at the death of someone that he loved? You suppose he never prayed? What about um, during times in the synagogue? Do you suppose he never prayed? Well, let's just make a clear distinction. Reciting a prayer is not the same thing as praying. You see, it wasn't until Saul of Tarsus was born again that he actually prayed where God would hear it. And so when God tells Ananias, behold, he is praying, that was a big statement. It means this one who once persecuted the church is now part of the church. This one who used to hate Jesus and all the followers of Jesus is now one of them. And so he's praying because he is able to, uh, by being born again, actually connect with God. He's spiritually alive. And so... Um, how important is all of this? It's so important because people can come to church, identify with the church, even learn some of the things that are taught in the church, and yet not be born again. So we better go to our answer here. Um, if you're memorizing these, buckle up. This one's going to take you a while, but it's well worth it. And more important, I think, than memorizing it, is understanding it. And that's what we're going to attempt to do. Okay, the answer. Only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, so even though we are guilty of having disobeyed God and we are still inclined to all evil, nevertheless, God without any merit of our own, but only by pure grace, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ when we repent and believe in him. You know, I think uh, growing up, being a lifelong Baptist, I think there was a time when people assumed that, you know, I knew the gospel. And yet if they had asked me this question, how can we be saved? I probably would have said something like, you got to pray a prayer. A lot of people recite prayers, 
and they're not born again. Steve Elkins and I visited a couple one time, and while we were talking to them, uh, they told me what church they were a member of, and I asked them, uh, could you share, me, share with us a little bit about how you came to know Christ? And I'm not kidding you. The only thing they could come up with was I went down front. I was sitting there and I knew that things weren't right, so I went down front. And I've been different since I went down front and you know, several things like that. Um, we had to explore that a little bit because Folks, you could walk down front until the carpet is frayed. You've walked so much and not get saved. There's not a thing in the Bible that talks about going down front. In fact, in the early church, they didn't do that. And um, when you think about how we phrase getting saved, I mean, what are you going to tell a lost person? You know what? If you just go down front, God would change your life. And again, what in the world does that have to do with it? Sometimes it might be because, um, you know, I asked Jesus into my heart. And uh, I did too. I did too. Yet there was nothing about sin. There was nothing about forgiveness. There was nothing about the cross. All I did was ask Jesus to come into my heart and I think I had the idea that poor Jesus was lonely. He was shut out. Maybe it was cold out where he was. And he would like to come into my heart. And if I would only open the door of my heart, then he would come in. But that is such a um, non-gospel. That is such a um, deficient gospel. Because when we talk about salvation, we're talking about more than a ritual of walking down front. We're talking about more than just the ritual of repeat this prayer after me. And we're talking about a whole lot more than just feeling sorry for Jesus and wanting him to come into our heart so we open the door of our heart. This is about Jesus, the perfect Son of God, dying on the cross taking the wrath of God for our sins in our place and paying for it fully so that when we receive him as Lord, believing that he has been raised from the dead, he takes us from a state of guilt and condemnation into a state of righteousness, his righteousness, and of acceptance into his family. Now, world of difference in the way you think about and describe salvation. Now, I heard somebody say one time on the radio, I think it was uh, Glenn Beck, he's a, a Mormon, and he went on a, on a rant against this idea of salvation by grace through faith and not of works. And he said it can't possibly be that way. And then he said something to this effect, I resent thinking that somebody could live a life like Adolf Hitler and then get saved on their deathbed and go to heaven just as someone like me who has tried to live a good life for decades. You know what he was saying? It's not fair that someone could be saved apart from their works after I've worked so hard. 
Well, if anybody could say that and really mean it, it wouldn't be Glenn Beck. It would be the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, like so many in Judaism and other religions, would say, how dare you say that I'm a sinner like Hitler, if he had lived then, would be a sinner. I mean, Hitler certainly was a sinner, but I'm not a sinner like him. My sins are light. My sins are minimal. My sins are not really that big a deal. And in my life, the good outweighs the bad. And I work really, really hard at that. And uh, so therefore, I believe God is going to accept me. Uh, there's something about that that makes salvation by grace through faith offensive to those kind of people. The problem is they don't see themselves as a sinner condemned and on their way to hell. Remember Jesus said in John 3.16 <coughs> that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that. And some of us know the next verse, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But very few know the next part of it that tells us that if we don't believe in Christ, we're condemned already. Condemnation is not something we're going to face one day. Condemnation is now on us. And it's kind of like if you were in a courtroom and uh, you were convicted by a jury of your peers of murder, and yet the sentence hadn't been passed. And the judge might say, you have been found guilty of murder by a jury of your peers, and sentencing will be in two weeks. And it's in the two weeks that uh, everything begins to happen in that way. Well, lost people are condemned already because they don't believe and their sentencing is going to come at the great white throne judgment when they are resurrected and called to stand before Christ. And they're going to give a, a weak, meager defense about uh, what they've done and how much they deserve heaven. And then Jesus is going to expose them for what they are. Everything they did was stained and tainted by sin and unacceptable to God. I've used the illustration when I've witnessed that I used to work in a pizza place and make pizzas. So I know how that's done. And let's say that I made a pizza with the freshest dough, the most wonderful sauce you've ever had in your life. The cheese that I put on it is just absolutely amazing and very expensive. And I put uh, pepperoni and Italian sausage on it that's to die for. And then I put poison mushrooms on it and then baked it in the oven. Would you take that pizza on the basis that most of it's good, the majority of it's good, that the good ingredients outweigh the bad ingredients? Because they certainly do. And you would not knowingly take that pizza because you would say, no, the mushrooms that are on there that cooked on there and the juice that came out of them <coughs> and permeated the pizza, you wouldn't want to <laughs> run the risk. And for those of us who try to come to God on the basis of, look how good I've been, we're offering God a poison pizza, he's not going to take it. 
And there are a lot of other illustrations you could use. A glass of water, eight ounces of pure filtered water with just a little bit of arsenic in it, you wouldn't take that because even though the good outweighs the bad, the arsenic taints the whole thing. And that's the way sinners are when they stand before the Lord. That's their defense. And yet it's inadequate because their lives are tainted by sin. Somebody said, if all sin were blue, then every part of our life would be some shade of blue. Maybe light blue, but it's blue. Some parts are dark blue and very obvious, but the Lord would see it all. And that's why before they're cast into the lake of fire, not only are books opened so that their works condemn them, but also the book of life is open and their name is not found there. And that's the sentence. That's, that sentence, that's when it comes out. And that's a horrible thing to think about for people that we know and people that we love and we ought to care. And so Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 I know you know it, but I'm going to read it out of the translation they use. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that last phrase is really important, because if salvation is the way I described it before, everybody would have reason to boast. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I worked really hard to make my life acceptable to God. And there's boasting in all of that. But the way salvation is in the Bible, only God gets the glory because only God saves and only the death of Christ redeems us. And so he's the only one that had anything to do with it. So let's think about some things here in the time we have left. Number one, salvation changes the judgment of God towards us. God is a God that is judgmental. He's not just a fun, happy-go-lucky, everything you do is fine, I'm okay, you're okay. No, he's a judge. And uh, by judge, what do we mean? Well, not necessarily condemn. I think the word judge has a connotation in 21st century America, if you are judging me, you're condemning me. Well, let's just face facts. All of us are to some degree or another judges. We judge other people by their appearance. Boy, she's really pretty. He's really handsome. We judge them and say things like, man, he looks like a really, really good athlete. Uh, Something like that, right? We judge other people by what they wear. Good night. Doesn't he know those colors clash and they don't go together? Uh, Look at her. She needs to get her hair style brought up to date. That's not anything that anybody's worn since the 80s. We do that all the time, don't we? We uh, make all kinds of judgment about other people. They're good or they're bad. And sometimes or most of the time when we do it, It's kind of with a condemning edge to it, and that's why people don't like it. But when you think about it, the word judge is actually to evaluate, to make an appraisal of things. And all of us do that. Whether we like to admit it or not, all of us do that, at least to some degree. 
And God does that as well. And when God looks at you and he looks at a lost person, he makes an appraisal, a judgment, if you please. And when he looks at you, his judgment is different than it is toward the lost person. Now stay with me. When he looks at the lost person, he sees them as being dead in trespasses and sins, being full of sin, being proud and arrogant, hypocritical and distant from God. And when he looks at you, he sees you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees you with the righteousness of Christ, white as snow. He sees you as part of his family. So he's making a judgment about you. And sometimes that judgment leads to discipline as he corrects you like a loving father would. And the judgment on the lost person is going to be, if you don't repent of your sins, you're headed toward an eternity in the lake of fire. Both of those are judgments, but our judgment, our appraisal by God, our evaluation is far, far different. It changes the judgment of God toward us. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And perfection means completion, fully grown up. There's nothing to add to it. And our being sanctified, when it says, means that even after we're saved, even though we're perfected in Christ and God sees us as the finished product, we're still growing and learning and being disciplined in our day-to-day life. Now, someone says, how can both be true? Well, you've got to know the difference between our standing before God and our state before God. Huh? What is our standing before God? That's how we approach him, through Jesus, through his sacrifice. Because we are redeemed, because we're born again, because we're spiritually alive, because we are complete in him, lacking nothing, we have a standing before God that is unchangeable. We are always welcome. We are uh, the security, we might say, of the believer, the perseverance of the saints. That belongs to us. And that is how we stand before God, complete and uh, welcome. That's how he sees us through Jesus' blood. But what's our day-to-day state before God? Up, down, up, down, up, down, We sin, we fall away, we stray. And while our standing and our status and our relationship to God never changes, the day-to-day state of affairs in which we live certainly does change for us. And so um, even though he sees us through the blood of Christ, when he looks at us, he also knows that we need discipline. We need correction. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that he disciplines those whom he loves, the ones that he is related to in a family way. And it says that if you do not receive his discipline, then you're an illegitimate child. You don't really belong to him no matter what you say. So standing in state, and this is how God does this. We're disciplined and we mature in Christ's likeness, okay? Number two, 
Salvation changes us spiritually, spiritually. Now, I'm still being changed in my day-to-day life, but the moment I was saved, I was changed for time and eternity spiritually. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Well, when I look in the mirror, it still looks like I'm in the flesh. But Paul is talking about something different. Your life. He's talking about your power. He's talking about your standing before God. You are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Let me say that again. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That would be the Holy Spirit. But if Christ is in you, through the, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, can you imagine that God came to live in you through the Holy Spirit? And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, this is why we reject the charismatic notion of receiving the spirit subsequent to salvation. No, he comes in at the moment of your salvation, makes you spiritually alive and comes to indwell you permanently. And Paul says, if that didn't happen, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. You're none of his. And it also tells us here that it is the Spirit that gives us new life. The Holy Spirit gives us new life. And so how important is that? Well, we receive a new nature the moment that we're saved, and we receive the power of God for everything God wants us to do. Not our power, no longer our power, but it's spiritual power because we've been changed. Number three, salvation changes our life source. Where does your life come from? What is it that makes you live? 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self, the fleshly part of us, is wasting away, our inner self, the spiritual man, is being renewed day by day. Did you know that? You're getting stronger spiritually every day, whether you feel like it or not. And while your outer parts are wasting away as you get older, you're becoming stronger in the Lord and the power of His might because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That is absolutely wonderful to think about. Jesus said in John 15, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You know, dead branches don't bear fruit. And so Jesus is telling us if we are connected to him and his life is flowing through us, like we saw in Romans in that last point, if that happens, you can't help but bear fruit. And there are two basic types of fruit. You have attitude fruit. That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the love, joy, and the peace and all of that. 
And then there's action fruit. And action fruit is always a result of the attitude fruit. When the Spirit gives you His fruit, it's going to work its way out by changing who you are, how you think, what motivates you. And then that's going to bear action fruit. And the action fruit is, well, it's things like leading someone to Jesus Christ or things like that. That's when that's going to show up. And so uh, we want fruit. And we want fruit to identify us. We want fruit where people look at us, they go, oh, there's a Christian. Why? Because they see our fruit. Sometimes, some Christians live such an anemic, carnal, sinful life that you, the fruit is hard to find and hard to see. But trust me, it's there. And it may be you have to wrestle around and look through the leaves and you find just a little dried grape in there, but there'll be something. But the Bible says that Jesus is glorified, which is what we all ought to want, when we bear much fruit and fruit that remains. That's how you want to go out. That's how you want to die. That's what you want to be able to present to Christ. And then understand that as we talk about all of this, receiving eternal life, and only God is eternal, so eternal life is to receive God's life, and that's the power that we have for bearing fruit, brings us to number four, salvation changes the object of our faith. You know, sometimes we like to talk about how much faith we have, and the Bible doesn't really put a whole lot of emphasis on that, does it? The Bible puts more emphasis in the object, the object of our faith. You see, I'm sitting in this chair right now while I'm teaching, and the important thing is not how much faith does Greg have in this chair? Because there are some chairs that will fool you when you sit on them. They'll collapse. And so the idea here is, I'm sitting in this chair. Is that faith? Well, yeah, it really is. But the most important thing is not how much faith I have, but how good is the chair? If the chair is good, then I'm going to be fine even with a little bit of faith. And Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in rituals, not faith in what they've done, but faith in Jesus himself. Not merely believing that he exists, but faith in what he has done, that it is sufficient that he paid the price for our sin on the cross and rose from the dead. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, or human performance, no one will be justified. And justified means just as if I'd never sinned. So faith, faith must be placed in something, or in this case, someone that is worthy of our trust. And it's not the amount of faith it's the strength of where the faith is placed. Kevin DeYoung wrote this, Growing up in a cold part of the country, I often went ice skating and played hockey. I might tiptoe onto that first freeze of the year and sort of wonder, is this ice thick enough? Someone else might be on the ice zipping around and skating with great freedom and having a lot of faith in the ice while I'm 
gingerly tiptoeing and have just enough faith to get out on the ice. But what makes both of us secure? It's not the level of faith, though you'd like to have strong faith that's zipping around there, but it's the thickness of the ice. That's what makes the difference. And so all of us would like to have better and stronger faith. But remember, it's not the amount of faith you have. It's the object of your faith. And brother, sister, if your faith is in Christ, however meager your faith may be, your faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, that's Christ. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I pray you know him, and I pray that you're telling other people about him, and I pray that even through this lesson you've grown a little bit more in your understanding of salvation, and your faith is stronger, indeed stronger, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for taking the time to uh, watch this, or listen, as the case may be, and we'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday. And don't forget, we are having services at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday nights right now, and going through a thing, coincidentally, on faith in Hebrews 11 with Dr. Paul Tripp. Love to have you with us. Thank you again, and may the Lord bless you.